When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Reality Radio for a really great future. We're talking real money. Well, if it's Friday, it must be Q&A day again. And once again, we have to do a lot of Q&As in this one because thankfully you guys are really uh, asking your questions. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear that. <laughs> you have to forgive me. I'm just a little bit loopy today. Um, I, it's ibuprofen. That's all. Uh, just, just got my booster COVID shot yesterday, and every time I get one of the shots, it, I guess my immune system works pretty well because it just hits me like a freight train. Uh, but I'm here. I'm doing the questions, and we've got. Actually, we got like seven or eight. No, I th- nine? I don't know if I'm going to get through all of them, but I'm going to get started with the first one. <laughs> this one, these were sent in at TalkingRealMoney.com. They were recorded at TalkingRealMoney.com. And uh, the first one's from Cass. I like Cass. Hello. This is Cass from Mississippi. And I have a question about emergency funds. Um, recently, I... Uh, uh, invested in VASIX as my emergency fund. And I just, you know, I, I was looking at uh, an ally uh, savings account and I was looking at the money market funds and it's just like, oh, no. So I, I ended up going with VASIX and I just ended up putting some extra money in there to sort of compensate for the fact that it has some stocks in there. Uh, and now I'm thinking, you know, I have most of my stuff in VTI, and then I've got uh, a, a very small amount in BND. And I'm wondering, you know, I would love to just keep it simple. And I'm thinking, well, do you think it's like crazy stupid to uh, put an emergency an emergency fund in uh, BND? You know, is that kind of crazy, or would that be okay? I mean, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Well, and you know, and if I'm going to do that, then maybe what about putting it in VTI and just allotting like twice as much in my fund uh, for emergencies, just in case it goes down. I just can't do a money market fund. I just don't want to. So um, since I, I just converted over to ETFs, and so I mean, I could very well keep VASIX, but I was looking to find something uh, comparable or either just uh, simplify things even more and uh, stick it in uh, one of the two ETFs I already have. So what do you think? Is that just like totally crazy? What do you guys think? You guys know some stuff. I listen to your podcast all the time and it is absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for the advice. You're a thinker, Cass. You are, you are, you're maybe an overthinker just a little bit, but you're a thinker. You're a thinker. And you're an incredibly bright and an insightful woman because, you know, you, you, you really have great taste in podcasts. Um, but <laughs> you're overthinking this stuff. Okay, I get that you don't want a money market for your emergency money. They're not paying anything. But, but 
They're really, really, really safe. And really, really safe is really nice sometimes when stuff bounces around. I mean, for example, BND, the Vanguard Total Bond Index Fund, um, it's been bouncing around. Its value goes up and down. But if you're okay with that, then it's not a terrible place to keep emergency money. It's just not an absolutely safe place. I mean, for the year, BND is altogether down about two and a half to three percent because you know it's down in value, but it's also lost you the income that it's made. So um, it's not terrible. It's not a big deal. And you said you want to keep it simple. And what you're doing isn't simple with the VASIX, which is the Vanguard uh, Target Date Income Fund, which is 75% bonds, 25% stocks. It's a fund of funds. So basically, you just have a mutual fund of mutual funds. If you really wanted to make it simple, you could just do a target date fund that was in the right mix for you, that had the right amount of fixed income for your needs, emergency needs. Although I still, I'm really tempted, and I... I I understand risk really well. I I really do. But I still keep a couple of months of expenses in my boring, low-yielding bank account because of simplicity. It's immediately there if I need to transfer it over. I don't have to sell something at a loss and create a taxable event. That's one of the reasons why I do it. Uh, But you could, if you really wanted simple, probably the simplest thing you could do is get rid of that dumb VTI. I know it's done better. Well, that doesn't mean it will always do better. Use VT. I know it hasn't done as well, but that doesn't mean that it will always not have done as well. And do VT and BND. See, I told you I'm a little loopy. Uh, In the right proportion for your risk tolerance, maybe putting a little bit more in BND to account for the emergency money. But Cass, you're overthinking this. Love you to pieces. Overthinking it. All right. Thanks for your call. And uh, you're welcome to give us a call at 855-935-TALK or send your questions in at TalkingRealMoney.com. TalkingRealMoney.com. You can type them or you can record them like this. Okay, Tom and Don, I got a great question for you. Uh, I'm a grandma that lives in Kansas, but my grandson is nine. He lives in uh, Florida. And he started a job about six months ago, and he's doing Rover where he takes care of dogs over the weekend. And he's making a lot of money. He saved $400. Well, I've taught him a little bit about finance and entrepreneurship, and uh, we talked about how we were going to invest that money. And I'm thinking since he has a job, we can do a Roth IRA for him. Um, I'm just wondering what kind of um, things should we put in there. I want to make it interesting for him. I want him to learn. So I don't know if we just do the usual ETFs that you uh, suggest for people. Or do we buy like maybe one individual stock that he can learn to track and understand the stock market? market. I just want to get some ideas for this young man as he learns his way through his entrepreneurship and um, saving money. He does have a goal for the money. He wants He's nine, but he goes someday he wants to buy a car and a phone. <laughs> so maybe we just do a brokerage account. I don't know. You let me know. 
Thanks. Bye-bye. Hi, Mindy. Good question. Um, You know, it's funny. I had just done some research. I used to be of the opinion that Roth IRAs had to be from W-2 or 1099 income, but that's not the case. Apparently, the IRS says that it they can be from entrepreneurial activity, uh, their own business, in essence. All they have to do is keep impeccable records, and the pay has to be reasonable for the market. So, for example, someone can't pay them $1,000 to walk a dog. You know, it wouldn't be. You know, like grandma and and even you could pay the child. Apparently, this is what I recently read in uh, in in an article about Roth IRAs. Uh, so I think you're going to be okay if she. But the problem is this grandchild, and who can blame them at nine? They're not looking that far down the road. They're looking eighteen, a car, a phone. Although mom and dad will probably get them a phone long before that, but. That may be a better goal anyway at this point. As the child makes more, it probably makes more sense. Would I ever do one stock? Never, ever in a million years. It teaches a terrible lesson. It teaches a gambling lesson that you need to pick the right thing at the right time. And that's not the way it works. It's a terrible way to manage money. What I would do is tell the child, you can. we can set up a brokerage account uh, at Schwab or a, a custodial account. It has to be has to have an adult on it. And then you could put that $400 or part of that $400 in an ETF like VT, the Vanguard Total World Stock Index, because it's just one index. And the coolest thing about it is that it has every basically every stock in the world. It's like owning the world. And look, it's it's about economic growth. That's what this teaches. This teaches that economies, given time, grow and that diversification can help protect you when individual stocks go broke. The, 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 the whole universe of stocks cannot do so. It just can't. If it does, it's not going to matter what we do with our money. We, we're all going to be starving. So I would just set up a VT account with your favorite brokerage firm uh, in, in that ETF and let him watch that, let him get the reports and all that stuff online, of course. Got to get him online. And you know, but encourage him to do that. Thanks so much for your call. Go to TalkingRealMoney.com and record yours or type it in. Recording is more fun, though. They just sound better. And uh, here's our next one. Good morning. This is Vince from Chicago, Illinois. Maybe not the number one fan, but got to be pretty close. I mean, I got my Tom Cox socks on and I got my Don McDonald hair going. So two questions. Number one, been talking to my daughter-in-law, just getting started with saving. And when, when I try to go over some of the concepts, it seems as though she just glasses over. And I'm wondering, how do I, what's the best way to introduce young people to the concept of saving for retirement. Uh, She is a teacher, so she's not got the greatest plans to work with, but still got to get started. Second question is, for my hodgepodge portfolio, it's all in ETFs. It's all in indexed ETFs, but I have like 18 or 20 of them. And I've tried to figure out how to narrow it down. And I just keep tripping over myself. 
Uh, we're talking about a portfolio uh, of around $3 million pre-tax. So where do I start to weed out some of these ETFs? Keep up the great work, and thanks for all you do. Oh, fine. Tom has a line of stocking wear? I was not aware of this. The Tom Cox socks. Don McDonald hair. Hey, at least I still have some. Uh, thanks for your call, uh, your question. Um, <laughs> oh, there are a couple of ways. You know, of course, I'll get a plug for my book. You can buy it at Amazon. It's called Financial Physics. Or you can just go download a free copy at, at uh, TalkingRealMoney.com. You can also get a free, if, if they have Apple devices, you can get a free interactive version of it on the Apple Bookstore financial physics. Paul Merriman has a terrific book for younger investors. Um, it's called We're Talking Millions. And it, it's really great because it appeals to our universal greed. And that will certainly get people's attention. He's talking seven-figure sums for those who start early and do certain things. So, And it's, it's a real easy read or it's a real easy listen at, um, at Audible. So I would check that out. As for you, you have a hodgepodge portfolio because you like shiny objects. You get fascinated by the latest thing. You want to be in this part of the market, that part of the market, this segment, that segment. And you think you have diversification because of that. But as you said, there's diversification and then there's hodgepodgery. And you have certainly, certainly uh, shown a propensity to hodgepodge. How do you get rid of them all? By reducing almost everything. Reduce your portfolio down to no more, no more than 10 ETFs, 10 max. And they should only be asset class funds. And I think you should be even at lower than that. For example, you should have a total world index product or a total U.S. and a total international index product. You should have a bond product based on your risk tolerance. You should have a small cap value product in there. You should probably have an emerging markets product in there. And you should probably have a broadly based real estate ETF, uh, REIT ETF. That right there could pretty much cover it. I mean, you could go get a value fund and then a small value fund. You could get a... You know, an international real estate and a U.S. real estate. You, you could, but don't. Ten is too many. You are beyond too many. Just get rid of all of them slowly. Do some tax planning, and get them pared down to five, six, seven, maybe. You're going to get the same amount or more diversification, and it's going to be more sensible diversification because what you're doing now is you're betting on various segments of the economy, and you're not making good bets on any of them. Just stop betting altogether. It's not betting. It's investing in the economy of the planet and overweighting based on really sound data, overweighting small cap value, having a nice U.S. international split too. Good luck. Thanks for the call. Let's grab another one from the website. And let's see. That's this one right here. Hello, men. This is beginning investor Mark from Chicago again. On your Fortune's Fine Facts podcast earlier this week, 
A caller was mulling over some gimmicky ETFs, and you mentioned that Fidelity offers Avantis and Dimensional Funds for free. Regarding the small cap value portion of my portfolio, I do not know how to choose between FISVX Mutual Fund versus the Avantis or Dimensional Fund ETFs. AVUV is 20 basis points higher and DFAS is 41 basis points higher than the FISVX I currently own, but both seem to have better returns than FISVX. How do I decide? Well, you can't decide based on short-term performance. The thing about DFA and Avantis is that these are funds that were designed to take advantage of the value and small cap tilt in the marketplace. So therefore, they take a slightly more aggressive posture and they are smaller funds. So therefore, they have slightly higher expenses. I think when you get below 50 basis points, it's less of a big deal. When you get below 20 basis points, it's not a big deal at all. Uh, I would have no problem, though, with any of the three. You're right. The others have posted better returns. But part of the reason they've posted better returns is because they take a more aggressive posture. And we've had a nice run recently in small in value. So there is no one right decision. It's funny. Tom has the AVUV. I have the DFA just out of out of uh, momentum because I've used DFA for so long. Uh, I also have the Fidelity. Not the Fidelity. The Vanguard small cap value index fund. So does it matter a lot? No. We're quibbling over small, small differences over long periods of time, I believe. But uh, generally speaking, generally, broadly speaking, lower fees are better. Thanks for your question and uh, glad we can help. Next up, this one. Hey, this is Bree and I'm 53 I plan to retire at 62. Um, I scored 78 on your risk quiz, and I plan to be 80-20 in retirement with my asset allocation. Um, what I'm wondering is, what do you feel is the optimal allocation for my TSP uh, now? Uh, currently, I'm 75-25 in CNS, and I've been thinking about bumping up the S a little bit and adding just a smidgen of international, which I've never owned. Um, so I thought I'd, you know, glide in slowly with that. But uh, now I've, I have taxable money as well, and I take care of my emergency fund and, and things of that nature over there. Um, so what do you think about uh, CS&I and uh, percentages that I can be looking at between now and uh, another nine or ten years? And, uh, and I, I do um, plan on uh, moving everything to Vanguard eventually so that I can withdraw from the accounts that I want to. Um, that's it. And um, I love listening to you guys. Thank you so much for all the advice. Well, if you just kept going, I'm Bree and I'm 53. I'm going to retire at 63. It would have been a nice little poetic thing. But hey, you can, you can retire at 62. It's okay. Uh, so you have the thrift savings plan at 7525, which is really close to your optimal allocation for you. As a matter of fact, I probably think 7525 is a little closer to where you should be. 8020 is okay. 
I guess in my 50s, I was, you know, was about 80, 20. I'm more conservative now. I think I'm 70, 30. Um, but uh, this, as for the equity split between the, the C, which is the large cap fund, the S, which is the small cap fund, and the I, which is the international fund, we believe that your portfolio should be about 40, the, the equity portion of your portfolio, that's 75%. About 40% of that should be in C. About 40% of that should be in I. And about 20 in S. But if you want to be a little more aggressive, you could go 30, 30, 30, um, which would be fine. It's just going to be a little more frightening in a, in a downturning market. But generally speaking, we're going to say something like 40, 40, 20 is, uh, is optimal. But again, you took the risk quiz. It does require a bit of a iron stomach at times, but you appear to have that. So thanks, Bree. At 53, we appreciate the call you see. And now we go to, well, this one. Uh, hello, guys. So I just started listening to your podcast recently, and I wanted to make some comments about cryptocurrencies and hear your guys' responses if possible. And so thanks for taking my call. So about some of the stuff I heard, I just have some comments about cryptocurrencies, and I think uh, it can go way more in depth than what is being talked about on your show. So let me start from the beginning. Bitcoin never died in the early days, mostly because it's a much better means for remittance payments. So there are hundreds of millions of migrant workers around the world, and they make up to 700 billion in remittance payment volumes every year. If they were to use normal remittance companies in the traditional financial system, then it costs anywhere between 4 and 11% for them to send their money internationally, whether it be from the Philippines to the United States or Mexico to the U.S. or Africa to other countries or across the Middle East. Not only does it cost 4 to 11%, but it also takes 7 to 10 days to settle the transactions. Plus, the workers have to worry about being bribed by thugs at the entrances of remittance companies just so they can get in the door. Now, on the other hand, if they bought Bitcoin and sent it to their families internationally, then the money would arrive in minutes, not 7 to 10 days, and it would cost a few dollars, not 4 to 11% of the money they send. This means that it is hundreds of times faster and a small fraction of the cost for these people. That is a real demonstrable use case for Bitcoin that beats anything in the traditional financial system for, for performing specifically remittance payments from person to person. Also, there are companies like Celsius Network that launched their own cryptocurrency, which is the sell token. They launched it on the blockchain and their sell token acts just like a stock. Now, why would they launch a cryptocurrency that acts just like a stock? Well, they issue weekly dividends. They do buybacks. They have an income statement, a balance sheet, and cash flow statement. They launch as a crypto because it costs much less than doing an IPO on the NASDAQ or the NYSE. They can run the company transactions 24-7, 365. It trades 24-7, 365. It doesn't require the staff to be able to perform the processes for the transactions. The transactions are also much cheaper, especially internationally, and they settle within minutes instead of T1 to T3 
in the traditional financial system, which means one to three days. So this company's a yield aggregator and they're a lender. They have over 25 billion in assets and that those assets are just deposits. So a bank who takes in deposits, they give back 0% of the interest that they earn. What Celsius does is they give back 80% of the interest. Then you might ask how on earth can a company give back 80% of the interest? Well, they don't require the banking infrastructure or the payment processors as middlemen. All the transactions are processed on the Ethereum blockchain network. And they can send the money internationally for a fraction of the costs, and it settles within minutes instead of days. So they also don't have billions of infrastructure costs for the buildings. They don't have commercial banks at street corners. So since they operate at a fraction of the cost, they're able to give back 80% of the interest and still get by. The 12th largest pension fund in the world just took a $400 million stake in Celsius Network. There's real value there, and the 12th largest pension fund just bought into it. Another thing is when you call, when someone calls in, they're talking about banking the unbanked and using cryptocurrencies. They're not talking about doing transactions from a computer. They're talking about a cell phone. 80% of the world, which is 6.3 billion people and 650 million in Africa alone, are able to set up a digital wallet on a cell phone, which is basically a bank. These poor people have smartphones can sign up for Celsius Network, convert their national currency into the U.S. dollar, and earn earn interest like they never could in the past. There are several billion people in countries with inflationary currencies that now have access to a digital wallet and a stable coin, so their money doesn't inflate away. And as you know, you guys think there's no value in cryptocurrencies. The problem with that is that to do any of these services, you have to pay in a cryptocurrency. So you have to buy the crypto in the first place and then use it, which is the reason cryptos are worth trillions of dollars right now. So I have a feeling the system cut him off. I did not cut him off um, because I was very interested to hear what he had to say about cryptos because we are hard on cryptocurrencies because they still have so many things about them that don't make sense. I get that uh, someday, someday, the blockchain is going to be used in such a way that there is not the wild fluctuation in value. The prob- One of the biggest problems I have with Bitcoin and its ilk is the fact that from one minute to the next, you as a consumer don't have a clue what the darn thing is worth. Consumers hate not knowing what their currency is worth one minute to the next. A, a dollar, a euro, a yen, a pound, a, a, a won. They, they do fluctuate slightly, but it's within tiny fractions of a percent most days. Bitcoin and others move by percentage points, sometimes many percentage points. That's a terrible feature for a currency. And as for the 4 to 11% to send money, well, that's a spurious argument, too, because the last year, last year, the average rate to transfer Bitcoin from one country to another was 12%. This year, it's down, finally, to 3.5%, but that's darn close to year four. So not only do you get a volatile currency, but you've got an expensive-to-transfer currency. The other problem, then this is the biggest one of all, well, you know, the, the fact that nobody takes the darn stuff. Nobody does. Come on, name a legit business that takes Bitcoin. Y- yeah, you'll come up with the with a pot shop down the street or some one coffee stand in Seattle. Generally speaking, or maybe Tesla if they're feeling like it. 
But most people don't take Bitcoin, so it doesn't do any good as a currency. you got to convert it to cash. And the cost to convert Bitcoin to cash in an ATM? Well, sir, that's 11%. That's 11%. So it's not there yet. And this Celsius thing, this stuff is so unregulated. The, the People are stealing cryptos left and right. They're creating cryptos that just rob people blind. How do you know Celsius is going to hold up? How do you know? You don't. And they're taking big risks. They're making gambles. They're, they're they're lending out money. I'm just, I don't think the world is ready for crypto in its current form yet. I think that there will be great value in the blockchain. And I think you're going to see a move among various governments sooner than later to adopt a Bitcoin-based dollar, euro, etc. And then, then... Yeah, it'll be very easy for the great unbanked to make transactions. But right now it's not, even with their cell phones. It's still not. Yeah, they can move the money from the United States to Africa, but then what do they do with it once they have it there? What do they do with it? What do they buy? There really is no Bitcoin economy anywhere as of yet. Anywhere. Yeah, El Salvador, that didn't work either. So um, I just, it, it's... It's a solution that as yet doesn't really have a, 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 well, actually it isn't a great solution to a problem. There's a problem, but it's not a great solution to the problem. It's got flaws all over the place and still too many middle people, too many people who are involved in it as a speculative vehicle and uh, currencies shouldn't be generally speculative. Bitcoin certainly is. But thanks for all of the information. We do appreciate it. And, well, let's see. Should I do one more? It's going to run me way past my time. But, yeah, let's do one more question. Hi, Tom and Don. Uh, I'm a faithful listener uh, living on the East Coast. And a company was recommended to me by some friends for financial advice. I know you're very cautious about determining if a financial advisor is a true fiduciary. The website looks pretty good to me, but I wanted to see if you could take a look at it and give me your opinion. Um, the uh, website is uh, com, and that's spelled E-M-E-R-I-C-K financial, all one word, dot com. Any help you can give me would be much appreciated. Thanks a lot. Well, Leslie, I read through their Form ADV Part 2, looked at their website, and um, they're a fiduciary. They're a 100% fiduciary firm, 100%. They, uh, they are not an asset management firm, though, like our firm. We manage assets. We're, you know, we're always working on your portfolio. They are planners. There's a, there's a bit of a distinction. We're we're both planners and asset managers, so we charge uh, a fee based on assets. They charge instead a fee based on either just a one-time plan, uh, which can run up to about $10,000, or they charge an hourly fee, which according to their ADV is $240 an hour, which is a fair fee for a financial planner. So they look a lot like a financial planning firm that knows its stuff and 
takes the fiduciary responsibility they have very seriously. So, um, I mean, again, I don't know, but from what I read, they use the same scientifically based approach to building portfolios that we do. They're just not doing the regular rebalancing and all the handholding that we're doing. But it's a different way of approaching it. And, and it's a perfectly legitimate way of approaching it. I have no issue with that. And I think their fees are fair. 240 bucks an hour may sound like a lot, but for the, the level of skill you're getting, the kind of work you're getting, it's probably worth it. And you're probably going to get a really good financial plan. And, you know, you can always contact them and talk with them and pay them their fee. So it depends on how much you use them. Could be a lot cheaper. Could be a little more expensive. Doesn't. There's no way to know. But you are getting a fiduciary from what I can tell. And um, the information I read looks pretty darn good. So I give them a thumbs up. Thumbs up to Emmerich. Thank you all for for the questions that were all sent into TalkingRealMoney.com. Last week, they were all called in to 855-935-TALK. And you can do either one. You can type them. You can speak them. You can call them. And we like to try and answer them and listen, too. Even if it's a conflicting opinion, we listen. May not always agree, but we listen. And we appreciate you. We're glad you're there. If you really need some bigger help, one thing we have done and will do for as long as Tom and I are able is we will offer the services of our 100% fiduciary advisors for a a period of time on a one-time basis for those hodgepodge questions like we got today. I've got this hodgepodge portfolio. Help me clean it up. Uh, I'm looking for a second opinion. How do I start building a plan for my future? What's this all about? How do I get educated? We'll do those things, those meetings for nothing. We will not manage your portfolio for life. That would be a bad business decision. We wouldn't make any money and we couldn't afford to do this show then. But if you, if you need help for a little bit, Go to Vestry.com, set up an appointment. You will not be charged anything. You will not get a high-pressure sales pitch. I promise. You can call and yell at me if you do, and it'll make you feel a lot better. Well, thanks for being there. Tell your friends, acquaintances, people you run into, that this is the place to get some of the better financial advice in a podcast. And uh, we're glad you're out there. Take good care. I'm Don McDonald. And despite the aches and pains, I'm just going to hang out, thinking about and then talking real money. Talking real money. We hope you realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for educational and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately, consistently predict the future. So, past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by Vestry, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening, and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. That's a wrap.